0: Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. As has become our pattern in recent years, we celebrate the feasts and the festivals of the church year when they fall on a Sunday. And in spite of the much appreciated extra work that it gives our beloved altar guild in changing the pyramids a few more times... It is right and it is proper and helpful that we observe these days. It gives us a broader exposure to the words of the Bible. It deepens our understanding of the story of salvation. And it makes us see new and different ways of how our loving Lord has worked and continues to work on our behalf. In other words, it gives us more Jesus And more Jesus is always a good thing. Much of our nation's focus on February the 2nd is usually on whether or not a chubby and smelly rodent is going to emerge from hibernation and see a shadow or not. The emphasis being there on creature and creation rather than on creator. On February 2nd of this particular year, Most of our country will also be focused on the worship of pseudo-warriors, attempting or preventing the attempt to move an inflated animal skin down a large green carpet. Don't get me wrong, sports are a great pastime and I love them passionately. And yet in our modern culture, it seems as if they have taken on a level of importance and devotion that make them the world's number one pagan religion. The feast of the presentation of our Lord and the purification of His Mother Mary, however, is also on February 2nd, as Pastor pointed out, the 40 days following Christmas. Now, in keeping with the instruction of the law, the Virgin Mary and her husband Joseph had already had the baby Jesus circumcised on the eighth day, that is, January 1. And now on the 40th day, Mary also goes through the purification rites following childbirth. This includes making a thank offering in God's temple. Now on the basis of time and distance, it is only possible that this visit to Jerusalem is taking place before Jesus and his family flee to Egypt to escape Herod's bloodthirsty rampage against the infant boys of Judea. So imagine this, already having, already having shed his blood for us once in the rite of circumcision, now Jesus is brought right into the very center of the region's earthly powers. The city where Jewish religious leaders, where the puppet King Herod, and yes, even where the Roman governor of this province, all exercise their offices. He's right under their noses, helpless. Easy pickings, it would seem. But they don't know that he's there. Perhaps the wise men are still en route from the east. Or perhaps Herod has not yet quite figured out that he's been duped. Regardless, Jesus is brought safely to his father's house for the first of many times. Luke's theological emphasis in this story becomes quite clear. Mary and Joseph are pious keepers of God's law. When it comes to child rearing, they are doing everything according to the Torah's instruction. Although yet he would not understand it from a human perspective, the Lord Jesus is being taught to keep God's law. And he would keep it perfectly for us. And on his 40th day, God's Son, our Savior, is brought to the temple. He is carried in his mother's arms into his father's house, where Joseph and Mary will give the father thanks and praise for this wondrous gift. Once again, just as they were surprised by the words of angels and of shepherds, Mary and Joseph will also be surprised and startled by the testimony concerning who this child is and with what great hopes he is entrusted. For already in chapter 1 of Luke, the angel Gabriel told Mary of this wondrous birth to be. Then, John the Baptist leaped in his mother's womb at the mere sound of the voice of Jesus' pregnant mother. And earlier in chapter 2, shepherds came to the mangers with incredible, amazing stories of angel choirs and tidings of great joy concerning the child. And now, once again, here in the temple, two elderly saints, Simeon and Anna, are also overcome with joy. They offer God their highest praise. They have been given the opportunity to to lay eyes and, yes, even lay hands upon God's infant King, the long-awaited Savior of the whole world. Now, Luke's narrative here is not the product of a fertile theological or literary imagination. Having, Having thoroughly researched the entire story of Jesus' life, Luke's inspired words here flow out of a recording of the oral history he uncovered. He has spoken to many who saw and worked with and knew Jesus. It's even likely that he may have spoken with the elderly virgin mother herself, for she would have been living at John's home in Ephesus, having been placed in John's care by Jesus from the cross. Looking back there on her life and the joy and the pain of being the mother of God, Mary could tell Luke intimate details that describe the pious home life and the spiritual nurturing that Jesus received from her and from Joseph. Now clearly, Jesus' divine nature would have already known all there was to know about God. But we are told that Jesus respected them and obeyed them. And so he would have patiently listened and learned what his earthly parents had to say. All of this should serve as a source of encouragement to parents who would strive to raise their own children as followers of God's Son. For if Jesus even still studied and learned the story of the Scriptures, then surely it has all the greater value and benefit to our own children. What happens in the temple is also quite encouraging. As representatives of the very best of Jewish religious tradition, Simeon and Anna rejoice to lay eyes and hands upon the infant king and savior. Unlike the scribes and the Pharisees and the other religious leaders who would one day take offense at Jesus and even reject the Son of God when he comes to claim his people, Simeon and Anna are filled with the Holy Spirit They testify to the great and wondrous things that God has already done and would yet still do through this child. And they are the forerunners of the vast numbers of traditional and ethnic Jews who will one day confess Jesus as the Messiah, as the incarnate Son of God, as the Savior of the world, and would form the initial core of the Christian church. Now, centuries of Lutherans and other Christians know Simeon's song, even if they cannot remember his name. And that's because after having received the Lord's body and blood, they have joined countless times in singing that Nunc Dimittis, drawn from those words of Scripture, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. Simeon is the embodiment of a pious older man. He spends his days praising and thanking God, and he longs for the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Similarly, Anna typifies a pious widow. She too spends her days praising and thanking God. Her only hope is in the Lord. As a prophetess, she proclaims the coming crucifixion of God's Son and the stumbling block that that would be for all of those who reject Him much in the same way that Mary of Bethany, Lazarus' sister, will later proclaim the resurrection from the dead and the life that Jesus will give to all those who embrace Him. Simeon and Anna are role models for saints today whom God has not yet called from this earthly life. Simeon and Anna show what it is and what is possible when the eyes and ears are tuned not to the heartaches and the disappointments of this life, but the hopes and the promises that God offers to all who put their trust in Him. Others may show bitterness or cynicism or yield to depression and world-weariness. Not Simeon and Anna, though, and not anyone who lives rejoicing in Christ. Instead, they point to the infant King and Savior as if to say, What joy to know that God answers all of our prayers and keeps all of His promises to us in Christ Jesus. What joy to see Him even before He goes to His cross for our salvation. What joy to hold Him even before He rises from the dead and ascends in glory to intercede for us at God's right hand. When fathers and mothers and godparents and grandparents bring little ones to receive the blessing of God's baptism. They are like Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna, testifying to the Christ who came to save. God has entrusted parents with so much more than just proving that they have been here and left behind a biological legacy or a flesh and blood monument to their existence. No, what God has placed in their hands is a fragile and precious gift, One who is like them, created in God's image. Whose very future depends upon their faithfulness, their godly example, and their sharing of the gospel. So many parents get their roles jumbled up by the ideas and the self-absorbed imaginations of this broken world. Now it is not that God does not care whether a child hones and develops his or her talents or has a successful life on earth. Indeed, God has given everyone gifts and vocations and opportunities to work for the well-being of others. But the essential thing to remember is this, if one raises a child to gain the whole world but loses his or her soul, then that is an eternal tragedy like Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna, parents and godparents and grandparents and other interested mentors hold in their hands and in their hearts and their minds a gift created by the greatest gift ever given. A parent who refuses to bring a child to baptism or who refuses to surrender his or her own life to God's good and gracious will is already a millstone around their child's neck that parent has failed to get his or her priorities in a godly order. Likewise, those parents who find excuses to avoid coming to worship, who whine with the same old impious words about the church's failings and all of her shortcomings, is also a millstone around his or her child's neck. But that parent has also fastened a millstone around their own neck. As Jesus later says, Whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, it would be better if that one had a millstone hung around his neck and be cast into the sea. The Lord's many warnings about spiritual enslavement by money and by possessions can also be extended to all of those other cultural must-haves of our present dark age. Self-declared enlightened parents are held captive to dark forces when they have high hopes and take extraordinary measures for their child's worldly success but opt not to bring their children to the services of God's house to place in their hands the holy scriptures to fail to teach and to fail to provide for the instruction in the Christian faith of those children. Instead of all the technology and the toys and the activities and all of the worldly advantages these children receive though the essential thing that they need and that they need to know is that Jesus is the author of their life. Jesus, by His death on the cross for the whole world, is the one who guarantees that all life is precious. All life is lovable. All life is valuable to God. And that is why Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna, as part of the story of our salvation in Christ, become essential portrayals to us. For what Jesus did in their lives, He has done in ours. Led by the Holy Spirit, these saints show pious and godly lives. Believers who struggle just as we still do in the face of the world's high-sounding nonsense. But Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna demonstrate for parents and for godparents and for grandparents everywhere the essential role to which they are called as molders and shapers of the godly life in the children whom God has called into their lives and entrusted to their care. But how will a child be baptized into Christ's death and resurrection if he or she is not brought to baptism? How will the child be nurtured in the Christian faith and in the Christian life if he or she has no teachers to teach them about their Savior or examples of righteousness? How will the child come to know the shape of the Christian life as one of dying daily to sin and rising again to new life? If his or her parents and godparents and grandparents do not model such a way of life. How will a child learn to open God's word, to pray, to sing God's praises, if no one in the household is fluent in the way of God's kingdom? How will the child learn to value not only his or her own life and ambitions, but also the lives of others? if no one is around to show the countless ways that life is a wonderful gift from a great and compassionate God. And so today we have Mary and Joseph, Simeon and Anna, as encouragers for us to offer our own sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. For God has graciously sent His only begotten Son into our flesh. He has come to redeem us and to save us, lost and condemned creatures from sin, death and Satan, baptized into his death and resurrection, and nourished with his own true body and blood, in, with, and under the bread and wine, we can offer our praise and our thanksgiving, not only with our lips, but also with our entire lives. And so we do well on this day of Jesus' presentation as an infant in the temple to remember that every child is a gift from the great giver, Treasures such as these are to be cherished and guarded, stewarded in such a way that the gifts that the Lord has given to each and every individual child are nurtured until they give God glory, the glory that is due to Him alone, both here in this earthly life and in the eternal heavenly life yet to come. So may the Holy Spirit lead us and guide us in this way of life that all of our words and our deeds bring glory and honor, worship and praise to our triune God who has prepared our place at His banquet table through Jesus Christ our Lord. In His holy name, amen. Amen.